We thank you, dear Lord, for your grace for us, for your mercy, for the forgiveness of our sins. And now we ask now that as we study your word, that you would guide us through your Holy Spirit, uh, that you would empower us to uh, open our hearts to you and to be obedient to you. And we are grateful for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we have reached uh, the third lesson in four lessons uh, on the pastoral epistles. Uh, which stand, as we know, for 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Uh, and the first lesson uh, that we had was about the knowledge of God. Who was God? Uh, what aspect, if you will, of God can we learn from the discrete witness of the pastoral epistles? And uh, we basically concluded that, uh, that the God of the pastoral epistles is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, if God is who he is in his acts, uh, we saw that the acts that the Father does, the Son also performs. So the Father is merciful. The Son, Jesus, is also merciful. The Father is designated as Savior. The Son is also designated as Savior. So we saw that what God the Father does, God the Son also does. In such a way that you cannot speak of God without speaking of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So we concluded that, that the Trinity is uh, the, the framework, the theological framework of the pastoral epistles. Uh, last week we asked the question, how do we know this God? And we said that our knowledge of God is not dependent on the, the cleverness of our method, uh, our capacity to devise a way uh, to know God, but is totally dependent on God who by his grace in Jesus Christ chooses to unveil himself uh, for our salvation. And we saw that uh, that knowledge of God had an objective and subjective aspect to it. Objectively, it was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We can, as it were, see God in history in the incarnation of his son. But subjectively, in order to see Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit uh, to understand who he is. This week, we come to uh, another theme salvation in the pastoral epistles. Now, uh, as you can see, the, the framework that I'm, that I'm following is a theological framework, right? Who is God? How do you know God? Salvation. That's the kind of stuff you find in a systematic theology book. Uh, I would like to suggest, though, that those themes are forced upon us as we read First, Second Timothy, and Titus. I don't think that I'm forcing those categories on the text. I rather think that those categories are emerging from the text and forcing us to ask those questions. Who is the God of the pastoral epistles? How are we saved? And so uh, I hope that that's what's been happening here. So today, salvation in the pastoral epistles. Uh, these letters are wonderful. They have so many beautiful statements about salvation. And what I've done is I printed for you uh, what I think are perhaps the, the four most important texts uh, that in one way or another speak of salvation. So you have it there printed out. First uh, Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 1, Titus 2, and then Titus 3. Um, so let's begin then in your handout uh, with the Roman numeral 1, the dominant concept. Uh, the dominant concept of the pastoral epistles uh, with respect to salvation or deliverance is, is that, is that God is a Savior who saves. Pardon the, 
um, the, the same the same word there, the, the savior, because it sounds redundant. But I just want to make the emphasis. <laughs> uh, the dominant concept is if you want to uh, understand the pastoral epistles from this perspective, uh, the main theme is God is the savior and he saves. Uh, and then uh, this main theme, there are going to be, if I can use a, a musical analogy, there will be, there will be variations of that theme uh, in other parts of the letter. But the main theme is salvation. The word for savior or salvation occurs uh, in a disproportionate ma uh, manner <coughs> in these epistles. These are short epistles. But if you compare the use of savior or salvation with the rest of Paul's letters, uh, there are more statements about salvation or savior in the pastoral epistles than in the other letters of Paul. <coughs> so this concept of salvation is very, very important for in these letters. I want to ask two questions. Uh, well, really one question uh, with this respect about the dominant concept, God the savior, why? When Paul could have used uh, a different main theme to get at salvation, uh, why didn't he use, say, justification as the main theme? Why didn't he use uh, regeneration as the main theme? Now, he will talk about those things, but the main way, his main entry into this topic is through the concept of salvation. And I want to suggest that there is something in the background and something on the foreground that leads Paul to use the concept of salvation as the dominant one in this letter. First of all, uh, there is the background. That's 1A in your handout. The, the fact of the matter is that in the Old Testament, Paul's Bible, the early church's Bible, uh, when, uh, when there was talk about God, who God is, uh, God was often designated as God the Savior. God is the one who saves. There are many, many texts that we can read in the Old Testament, but I just point a few there to you. Exodus 15.2, uh, that was after the parting of the Red Sea. 1 Samuel 10.19, and then Isaiah 62. This concept of God the Savior uh, is uh, very, very important in the Old Testament. Uh, and there is a paradigmatic event. There is an event that was etched in the memory of Israel, deep in the consciousness of Israel, that it never forgot. Well, I guess it did forget sometimes, but I never forgot, and that is uh, the event of salvation from Egypt, the Exodus. The Exodus from Egypt became for Israel, and I would say for the New Testament, the paradigmatic event to understand uh, God as Savior. Um, You'll remember how that was. That uh, I, I think the idea there is that uh, God had chosen Israel, uh, Abraham, and through Abraham, the people of Israel, uh, to be his people, to be his servant. And Pharaoh had, as it were, stolen uh, the servant of God, of Yahweh. So when Yahweh sends Moses, he's basically saying, you stole my slave. You stole my servant. And I want him back. Let my people go. And so God delivers them so that they would be his servants. Now, as opposed to Pharaoh, who abused them, this God treated his servant well. He blessed them, right? Uh, he was with them. 
and so on. So, so that's the idea. This idea of salvation, we find that there in the Exodus, is the paradigmatic event for, for understanding salvation. In fact, it is so paradigmatic, it is so strong that later on when Israel again becomes slaves, uh, remember, years later, they were uh, they sinned against God, they disobeyed God, and so they fell as slaves to Babylon uh, and, uh, and to Syria. Uh, and there they were, again, in a, in a position of slavery. And, uh, and when they wanted to, uh, when the prophets wanted to remind them of their future hope, uh, especially Isaiah, he speaks to them of a new exodus. Uh, God is going to do a new exodus, uh, just like he did in the past, but even more glorious. And he's going to deliver the people, and they're going to come to Zion, and he's going to be their, their God, and they're going to be his people. So when the early church nourished in the scriptures of the Old Testament, when they thought about salvation, immediately the Old Testament concept of Yahweh, of God as a deliverer of his people, came to mind. And I suggest that that is the reason, or one of the reasons why Paul, when he uh, speaks about the concept of deliverance, uh, whatever you want, you want to call it, he uh, chooses the theme of God as Savior, the God who saves. Okay? The people will remember, just as God saved uh, the Jews, uh, he will also save us, who are the people of God through Jesus Christ now. But there's something also in the foreground, or even better, on the ground, and it is the following, uh, Roman propaganda. Uh, the Christians to whom Paul is writing these letters lived in a Roman world uh, where there was a lot of propaganda. Propaganda that with the Roman Empire, a new stability uh, was in place that had never before been reached. Uh, Octavian, Caesar Augustus, uh, gave a long speech that was written and, and put in stone uh, about, with, with, about him being a savior uh, of the human race. In fact, the Greek term that is used, soter, savior, was also used of, of Caesar Augustus. So he was a savior who would bring uh, peace, the Pax Romana, right? Uh, and stability to all the nations. And that kind of propaganda was all over the Roman Empire. You could see it in paintings, you could see it in the architecture. Uh, it was in your face. The idea was that uh, with the Roman Empire, people will be secure, people will be saved. Uh, I, I thought it was funny. There was, there was a Scotsman at that time who, who was a little more uh, cynical to that, to that kind of propaganda. <laughs> there, there's a Roman historian, Tacitus, uh, who uh, in his history has a, a Scottish guy uh, talking about uh, the Romans. And he says, yeah, yeah, the Romans come, they, they make the land a desert, and they call it peace. Um, so so, so that, that, the Scotsman didn't go for that. Uh, but that was kind of the, the propaganda. Uh, and so I think that when Paul, when speaking of Jesus Christ, when he says that he is the Savior, I think that is a reminder to those people that uh, the propaganda that you're seeing is just not true. Uh, there's only one Savior, one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that he was calling them to go for revolution. I mean, that, that's ridiculous. Try revolting against the Roman Empire. That, that's, you know, uh, or picketing. You know, that's not 21st century America or Western Europe where you can do that. But, uh, uh, but the idea was that uh, their security was to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior. I think that's the point. Uh, and I, as I thought about, I reflected on this, 
I, I was think I was reflecting on the place of the state in our lives. Um, whether whether uh, this is from a so-called Republican or from a so-called Democrat uh, perspective, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's the idea that as long as the state is in good shape, we will be in good shape. That our lives are so tied to the state that should the state fall into pieces, we will fall into pieces. Okay, um, and. Uh, and a lot of and a lot of us as Christians believe that, you know, my safety net is the state. Well, I'm all for a state for being a safety net, right? <laughs> you know, order is better than chaos, and uh, and and that's better than uh, than a government or a state that that wants to persecute you or steal from you. But at the same time, I personally find myself sometimes too dependent for my peace on uh, the wellness of the state. If things break down, will, would my comfortable life break down? Uh, well, yes, it probably would break down. But it doesn't mean that my life would have to break down. Because Jesus Christ is my Savior. Jesus Christ is my Lord. And the funny thing is, is that a lot of Christians who live in third world countries, where there isn't a state, or the state is totally corrupt, they are yet joyous in their lives in Jesus Christ. There is a wholeness to their lives. Uh, even though there is no wholeness of the state. And I think Paul is saying, Jesus Christ is our Savior. Depend on Him. He is our peace. He is our God. Any questions before I move uh, into some of the variations of this theme of salvation? So, again, what I'm suggesting is that the dominant concept uh, when we speak about uh, redemption, redemption, um, in, in the pastoral epistle, the dominant concept is that of salvation, God the Savior. And I'm suggesting that the reason for that is that there's an Old Testament pressure to go in that direction, and there's also pressure on the ground facing these Christians, uh, and therefore speaking of Jesus, of God as Savior, would have hit, uh, would have hit a nerve, uh, or even better, would have been an encouragement for them. Any questions at this point? Okay, let's look then at some variations of that theme uh, on your letter 1C that I've, I've titled it for uh, the application of salvation. That could mean something else, but I didn't think of, of other ways. Uh, but, but what does this mean in a concrete manner? Okay, I want God to be my Savior. Save me, God. What does that mean concretely? Well, I, uh, there are many things. We, we just don't have the time for all of them. But I, I've, I've written down here uh, six, uh, six aspects, six concrete aspects of what it means for God to save us. And all of, those, all of these are found, I think, in the text that I have printed for you. What does it mean to be saved according to the pastoral epistles? Well, first of all, and by the way, this is not the order of importance. It's just the order that... My brain was working, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, but but uh, number one, the abolition of death. Look at Second Timothy one ten. It's the second column there. Second text. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. 
This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What a tremendous statement. That to be saved means that in your existence, death will be abolished. Why is that? Well, that's because Jesus Christ went ahead of us. And he himself abolished death on Easter. Right? That's, what, that's what we celebrate. That, that's why it's the main celebration of the church. That Jesus Christ, unlike any person in history, got up. Just got up and defeated death in the power of his Father and the Holy Spirit. No one could do that. You know, you, you have a dead person and uh, you can scream at them or pinch them or whatever. They're not going to get up. That's it. It's done. Jesus uh, not a couple hours after he was crucified, uh, three days later, uh, he came back. Not all raggedy Jesus Christ, but with a glorified body. Glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that resurrection of Jesus Christ set in motion a future resurrection for all those who are united to him, for all those who believe in him. So that means that if, if you know Jesus Christ, if we are saved by Jesus Christ, death is abolished. Now, that could be in two ways. One way would be if in the parousia, if the Lord returns uh, before we die, then we will be transformed. And we will, have ex we will have an existence for which death has no power any longer. The other possibility is you die. I die. But yet God does not let our bodies rot terminally in the grave when Jesus Christ returns he raises us up with him and gives us a new glorified body and over that body there is no death anymore isn't that wonderful <laughs> to me that's gospel that's good news because death is all around us uh, it is it is so powerful uh, I can't defeat it but God can because he's the God of the living right one of the one of the prayers in the synagogue, blessed are thou, Lord God, King of the universe, who raises the dead. He's the God who raises the dead. So to be saved means that death is abolished. No longer will you see corruption if you know Jesus Christ. A second application of this salvation is number two there, is cleansing from sin. Using this metaphor of, uh, of uh, cleanliness and uh, uh, dirty spot as it were on the canvas uh, there's talk about cleansing from sin look at Titus 2.14 right at the end there he says uh, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own to purify for himself and then in 3.5 he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal. And that's going to link with, with something else. But he washed us. So the, the idea there is that as human beings, because we have sinned against God, we, we have dirt. Right? Uh, we have spots. Dirty spots. And that we cannot wash them off ourselves. Uh, another way of saying that we're sinners um, and there's nothing we can do about that sin uh, now this is a hard message a lot of people 
it's hard for us to accept that as as, as proud humans. Uh, but that is the teaching of Scripture. Um, not because of anything we have done are we cleansed, but because of His grace and His mercy. Um, and and I, I have conversations uh, with, with friends about this. So, you know, uh, you're a sinner and uh, you need to be cleansed from your sins to, to, to be accepted by God. Uh, he, will, he himself will cleanse you and accept you. Uh, well, they, am I really a sinner, they ask, you know. Uh, I'm a good father or a good mother and uh, I, I don't steal. I'm not a hypocrite. Uh, I treat my friends well. I'm not an adulterer or anything like that. Uh, but, but, okay, good. If you don't do any of those things, great. <laughs> uh, but the question is this. Do you love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your spirit, and do you love your neighbor as yourself? That is what he commands us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your spirit and your soul. Do you live like that? Are you absorbed in such a way in the love of God and, and in the love of neighbor that that is your life. <laughs> yeah, I look at myself, I look in the mirror and say, no, I'm more absorbed in myself, in my own dreams, in my own, my own accomplishments. Right? And therefore, I'm not loving God the way that he demands, the way that he deserves to be loved. And so, uh, whether I, you know, steal or not steal, any of those things, I'm falling short. Because I don't love God the way that He demands to be loved. That's sin. We break His commands. And the promise is that when we come to Jesus Christ is that He cleanses. He washes away those spots, those sins. And we don't have to walk around with with a guilty conscience. Hiding, pretending something that we are not. We can be cleansed from our sin. Another theme, number three, I have to move a little faster here, is redemption. Redemption, you find that in Titus 2.14. Again, uh, notice uh, it talks about uh, the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify and so on. So the concept of redemption, again, again goes back to the Old Testament, right? Redemption just means to be, to be bought back. So just as the Jews were slaves to, uh, to Egypt and God brought them back, bought them back. So we are slaves to sin. And God gives his son Jesus Christ uh, as a payment for the redemption of our sins. Don't ask me who the payment is for. I'm not going to that. <laughs> but uh, but, but, but and the payment is his life. Right? The payment is the giving of his life. He redeemed us uh, he gave himself. Notice that. Uh, it wasn't forced upon himself. It was uh, in the triune council. The son deciding to give himself as a ransom. Number four, justification, Titus 3, 7. So this, so this is wonderful. Uh, when you are saved, death is abolished. You are cleansed from your sins. You are redeemed from slavery to sin. And fourthly, you are justified. Very important term. You have that in 3.7. Towards the end there, uh, the very last line, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So justification basically means uh, being put in the right 
being put in the right. We were in the wrong in our sins against God. And now we are put in the right. Which basically means that you are brought into a relationship with God. And he justifies you, he says, by his grace. We cannot earn that justification. We cannot bargain with God. We cannot promise God, okay, God, I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, and based upon that, you are going to invite me into a relationship with God. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Uh, because we break that. <laughs> uh, but justification means that. God saying, coming to you in Jesus Christ and saying that you are no longer guilty. You are not guilty of your sins. Because Jesus Christ bore them on the cross. Turn to the second page. Uh, two more variations on the theme of salvation. Our new, new birth is one, right? New birth. Uh, Titus 3, 5. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. Rebirth. Uh, this links up with John. Uh, remember, in John 3, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus and he says, You must be born again. So it's rebirth, a new birth. Now, how wonderful is that? I mean, if you, had, if you have wrecked your life, I wrecked my life uh, before, I, before I was a Christian. Uh, it was a complete mess. Complete mess. And, and I, felt, uh, I felt so dirty. Uh, I had gone to, uh, to a Catholic school, um, very young, and they had inculcated in me the, 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 the importance of purity before God. But I could never achieve it. I could never be pure enough. In fact, I was walking in the totally, totally opposite direction. And then I heard the gospel, and it's the idea that through Jesus Christ, you can become a new person. New birth. And I think of a pure baby. Well, they come out a little dirty, right? Uh, <laughs> after, after you clean them and all that, beautiful skin and just new birth. Despite the ugliness inside of me, I'm given new birth. And then related to that, number six is new life. New life. Uh, Titus 2.12. Let me see here. Do I have? Yes. So, for the grace of God has appeared, the third text that offers our salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control, upright and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope. So, you get a new life. God gives you a new life. Uh, the new birth, uh, it, it's the beginning and then uh, your life changes. Right Now you want to please God. In fact, now the most important thing in your life, uh, the, the, the deepest desire of your heart is to please the Lord. Uh, you have a new life. We failed, of course, every day. Every time. Uh, sometimes I hear the liturgy, which we from time to time, sometimes, yeah, from all the time, <laughs> we have committed, from time to time, yeah, all the time, we have committed against you. But, but He forgives us. And we have a new life. And there is a change in your life. And there is hope through Jesus Christ. Okay, this. so first I wanted to, to look at salvation in the pastoral epistles by looking at the dominant theme and some of the variations of that theme. 
Now I'm going to move to the Trinitarian framework of that salvation, but are there any questions at this moment that, that, that may be running around in your head? Okay. Let's move then to the Trinitarian framework of salvation. We have seen that in the pastoral epistles, uh, there's a Trinitarian framework, uh, if I may put it that way, for who God is. You know, God is triune. It's not that God is God and, and yeah, we can speak also, also we may speak about him as a trinity. No, God is who he is. God is triune. That is the nature of, of his being as God. He's triune. Uh, but we also saw that the way to the knowledge of God is, is through a triune framework, right? The Father sends the Son who uh, takes on flesh, and therefore we can know God. And to know that God, to know that in flesh, Jesus Christ, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal to you who Jesus Christ is. So knowledge of God is a triune affair in a sense. Well, salvation, I would suggest too, in the pastoral epistles is, is viewed, it is, it's not just viewed, it is uh, a Trinitarian. Uh, now the first... Um, the first item there uh, is a little controversial, uh, but it's, when we think of the Trinitarian framework of salvation, the, we, let's speak about the Father, the Father's gracious election, predestination. Uh, we find that, we find it here. If you go back to 2 Timothy 1.9, uh, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time. Okay. And then this time I, I didn't print this text, but uh, in Titus, Titus chapter 1. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So here we have the sense that prior to creation, which uh, hasn't always been, right? There was a time when creation, when there was nothing, just the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in mutual love. Uh, and then God created. Prior to any of that, God determined himself... To be a God gracious to human beings. Okay, uh, a lot of people understand election and predestination uh, as if God had a, a a book or a ledger, <laughs> and it's scary in that sense. Uh, okay, before the world begins, before I have created any human being, I'm going to choose. I'm going to put on this column those who are going to be saved, and I'm going to put on this column those who are going to be damned. Right. Were you taught something like that? I was kind of taught something like that. That that's what it means by predestination. God says, these here are going to go to heaven, and these here are going to go to hell. Okay, That's sort of a crude way of presenting double predestination. Uh, but uh, I don't believe that. Okay? Uh, I, I don't see that. Uh, I'm, understa I'm, I'm in a journey in understanding this. I've been affected by a theologian named Karl Barth in this a little bit. That... Uh, 
uh, that the elect is his son, Jesus Christ. And that election uh, is good news. It's the sum of the gospel. Uh, it is God, before he has made you, constituting himself as a God who is for you. It's a God who, in electing his son, Jesus Christ, to be the representative of humanity, is thereby being God for you. There, that is, that, that who God is, is fundamentally for you. He loves you. And that uh, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took upon himself the damnation, the curse that we deserve to have. So as, as the elect son, uh, he came and he took our hell. Uh, and, and we are elected in him. Now, I have to work that out, and, and I should have written more down because the, uh, on the spot like that, it's a little bit more difficult to so, But my understanding is that everyone is selecting Jesus Christ. Okay, God wants to save the world through Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, and here's the paradox, uh, some people choose not to go with Jesus Christ, and then, and then they are condemned. So, uh, election... Predestination, the work of the Father, is is a scary thing for a lot of people. You know, oh, don't talk about that. You know, it's scary. Am I on that list? <laughs> is my name in the Book of Life, or is it not in the Book of Life? Uh, I I don't I'm not sure that that's a biblical way to understand it. Uh, election is the sum of the gospel. It's the good news because it it means that before you were born, God was already for you, and therefore He gave Jesus Christ. So it's good news. It's not bad news. Okay. So the Trinitarian framework, you have Father. You have the Son. The Son is the one who takes on flesh. The living uh, Word, the Word of God, becomes incarnate and adds flesh and becomes human. And as such, He gives His life as a ransom. Look at the, the first uh, the first Timothy text that we have there. Very, very important text. Speaking of prayer, prayer for all, it says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be safe and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now that statement there actually comes from uh, from Jesus himself. Uh, in Mark 10.45, you can find the statement, The Son of Man uh, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that just echoed in the ears of the apostles and the early church. And, and you see it echoed here. Jesus Christ uh, is the one who gives himself as a ransom for all the people. He's the mediator. Here's the wonderful thing about Jesus Christ as mediator, is that, uh, he's the mediator who is the mediator from the side of God and from the side of man. Okay, uh, from the side of God, uh, that is, he doesn't cease to be God when he takes on flesh. Right? When Jesus uh, assumed flesh through the womb of the Virgin Mary, he did not cease to be God. He added humanity to his nature, and in that sense, he represents God to us. But he's also uh, a mediator from the side of man to God. Now he's the one who mediates 
for us on behalf of God. He's the mediator, and therefore he's he's uh, a good mediator. The book of Hebrews, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus is the one who takes on flesh and uh, and gives his life as a ransom for us. Uh, and this links up with the election, right? We said that 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 uh, Jesus Christ was the elect to take our curse. And uh, when I was here before before most people came in, I had never looked at that painting there, but it's the painting of. Uh, uh, Jesus uh, reflecting um, on what's coming on the cross, right? Peter, James, and John fall asleep, and Jesus has the cup, right? And he's thinking, am I going to drink the cup? What is the cup? It's the cup of the wrath of God, right? God's anger for our human hate of God that demands punishment. Jesus is going to voluntarily take when he goes to the cross. And the prospect is so uh, overwhelming that he starts to break down. He just starts to break down. And the angels need to come and help him. And then there is forsakenness of Jesus Christ on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, why have you forsaken me? He gave himself as a ransom for us. And then lastly... Uh, we have the Father, gracious, gracious election, the Son who gave Himself as a ransom, and then thirdly, the Holy Spirit who gives new life. Uh, 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 we haven't seen a lot of the Holy Spirit in, in the pastorals, but, but here's a wonderful place. The last text, Titus 3. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior had appeared, He saved us, He saved us, excuse me, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. That is, it was based on His mercy which is a, a, a perfection of his love and his grace. So he saved us because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. You have the Trinity right there in that, little, in that short little text. The Holy Spirit is poured out by the Father and the Son and that Holy Spirit regenerates us, quickens us, and gives us new life before God and a new life to live. It is the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All right. Uh, thoughts, questions? But the but the question is does is when he's choosing and predestin, predestin, predestinating <laughs> does he do that on the as a response of what you as what he sees that you will do? No. Yes, yes, that's right, and that's the mystery. I don't understand that. No, that is something we can't. We're not content with not knowing that. But <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. But, but that, that gives us the urgency to, to, to speak about. Yes, it? yes. No, that's good. That's good. But, but that gives us like, okay, I need, I need, which I'm not good at, but I need to tell other people if that's good news. Mm, mm. Yeah, because we don't know who. Uh, 
Uh, yeah. It's, well, it's, it's, it's our hope when we share the gospel with people. It takes pressure, as it were, as it were off of us, because I don't have to manufacture a conversion. I just share the love of God with, with folks and let the Holy Spirit do the work. But, uh, but I think it's important to remember this, as, as you rightly said, that uh, God chooses people to be his people, not as a reaction of what he has seen you do in time. Okay, this is a, uh, what's the word, pre-temporal decision of God, work of God through Jesus Christ uh, to be in Jesus Christ God for us. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of reminded of a quote from John Calvin I read in some of my notes uh, this last week about predestination, wherein he says, Predestination, I'm kind of paraphrasing, predestination is too weighty a subject for man to really comprehend and fall into many a trap by trying to understand and relate it to your own existence. It is very careful, and in fact, what happened in the Reformed tradition is that a lot of people chose not to teach about predestination. It was like something that you know, the, 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 the pastors and the theology professors, let's not talk about this because it can hurt people, right? Be, uh, and often because it was understood as a double predestination. I mean, imagine that. Could you imagine uh, uh, going out and thinking, you know, before this person was born, God has already determined that this person is going to go to hell. No wonder some people, oh, no, don't talk about that doctrine. <laughs> it's a scary doctrine. But then other theologians have said, no, no. It, it, it is a wonderful doctrine. It is the sum of the gospel because it is the doctrine by which God, before he creates humanity, uh, he constitutes himself as a God who is going to be for humanity uh, by giving his son Jesus Christ, by electing his son Jesus Christ. You see? Any other thoughts or comments about that? It's just been wonderful, too, because as I've been... I know that my um, salvation is not doesn't hinge on me messing it up. That um, it yep. was found before creation, before time, that God was for me in Jesus Christ. So that has given me That's a lot of freedom. That's good. And, and it, is, it is on the basis of that election that he makes a covenant with humanity. To be their God and to not let humanity destruct itself. Uh, he will send his son Jesus Christ to prevent humans from destroying ourselves, which is what we do when we sin. We are destroying ourselves. Um, Yes. Any other thoughts? Okay. We'll stop there. Next week, uh, we're going to look at uh, a controversial passage, or two controversial passages. One passage that would seem to suggest that slavery should continue. Maybe I'm spicing it up, maybe to get you back here. Uh, and another one where it seems to say that, that women really should just really be quiet at church and not say anything at all. Is that really what Paul is saying? So we're going to look at difficult passages next week in the pastoral. Blessings, Senor.